I welcome all of you in the name of Jesus Christ. I um, am very happy you're here. I'm sorry that we are not having a meal this year as usual. I hope next year we'll go ahead and have one again. Uh, normally we feed you well. And for some reason this year we're not doing that, but next year we'll plan on doing that, so come back again. But I hope you won't wait to come back next year. I hope that you'll start worshiping with us each week as we come to the Lord, to his word, and ask him to feed us. I'd ask you this morning to take your Bibles and open to a rather strange place for an Easter morning. And that's Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 is an interesting place in Scripture because it's the place that we see the Apostle Paul not dealing with Jews, not dealing with people who were religious, but rather here he's dealing with those who are purely pagan, uh, men and women who are completely focused on the life of the mind, on gossip, on whatever is this, the latest uh, scholarship. And uh, it's in a city that to this day is honored among academic scholars as being the place of the highest learning and the highest culture and the highest philosophy the world has ever seen. Athens was a few centuries past its heyday, but it was still respected. It was the place that the rulers of Rome sent their sons to be trained at the university. And it had a tradition of democracy that was so strong that uh, in Rome they were given free city status. They were allowed to handle their own affairs. They didn't have rulers sent into them. And so anybody that lived in Athens had a good dose of pride. Athens was a place where if you lived, you thanked God that you were an Athenian. And so it's very different than the apostles speaking in Jerusalem or speaking in other cities. It's very different from some of the more backward cities that Paul spoke to, where instead of talking and quoting their philosophers, then he would talk about the seasons and the crops. So if we were to go out to Omaha, Nebraska, we would talk about the seasons and the crops. But if we were to go into Cambridge, Massachusetts or, or Bloomington, we wouldn't bother. We, we'd quote their poets, their philosophers, their, their people of great learning. And so this was the city of Athens, and we can see a strong resemblance between Athens and Bloomington, for instance. The Apostle Paul had just gotten done spending time in Berea, and he journeyed to Athens and we pick up the account in Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And this is Paul's habit. He goes into the place where people who were religious would hang out, namely the synagogue, and it had Jews there, but it would also have had people who didn't yet claim to be Jews. They hadn't gone and become full proselytes, but they had, in fact, declared that they feared the true God. So they're referred to here as God-fearers. And verse 18 says, And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. So he's out in the marketplace and he runs into uh, pure academic pagans. And they were saying what? What did they say about Paul? They said, quote, What would this idle babbler wish to say? 
And others said he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities, strange gods, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, a strange brew. So we want to know what these things mean. Now, the Areopagus was a place that had formerly been where they would judge men. If somebody was accused of murder, they'd take them to the Areopagus. It was a place, but it was also a council. And by this time, it was the place where they weighed the various philosophies. And if there was, if there was serious deliberation that had to happen, it happened in the front of these men who were themselves referred to as the Areopagus. And we see at the end of the text that one of the men that made up this council of the Areopagus ended up being converted. If you look at the very end, you'll see that it says that Dionysius, the Areopagite, actually converted in verse 34, but I'll keep reading. In verse 21, we see a verse that is... uh, the perfect expression always of places like the Sorbonne, like Cambridge, like uh, uh, Bloomington and Athens, the places that are the center of the learning, it says in verse 21, Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there, the tourists, used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. And we don't have to translate this today, do we? It just perfectly applies to our lives and to the communities that we live in. Picking up in verse 22, So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Now, that word religious uh, can have a positive meaning and it can also have a negative meaning, right? He's a very religious man. And you hear from my intonation that I'm not really giving a compliment, am I? But if I say he's a very religious man, the word can carry it a bunch of different meanings. And that's the same way this word here that we're translating religious can carry. In fact, it can also have a very strong meaning of superstitious. And so the Apostle Paul is not just being, you know, milquetoast, sort of sweet, kind of white breadish. Uh, but, but there's an edge to him. And he says, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. What was surrounding them there? Altars and temples. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children." Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, 
And now he comes to, to making the sale. He, now he gets to the, to the nub of the issue. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. And so Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Now, the heart of the city was a hodgepodge of idolatrous superstition and philosophical speculation, although it continued to be the home of this university where the flower of the Roman Empire's youth were sent. And Luke sums up the city's identity, saying in verse 21, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Now, there's been a discussion recently about whether or not sarcasm can ever be right for Christians to use. And I would trot this out as one example of where sarcasm is used. This is not a positive statement about the city. Am I right? He's not saying something complimentary about the city. He's saying, rather, all the Athenians and the tourists spent their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So the Athenians were addicted to the latest. If it was philosophy, they were panting after something new. If it was religion, they were always ready to embrace the latest God. Yeah, think about the, uh, what's it called, the something code. Yeah, the Da Vinci Code. You know, if you've read it, I have. It was a waste of time. But it taught me a lot about our souls and our minds. And what did it teach me? It taught me that we're ready for the latest in religion. Whole new set of theories. You know, Jesus actually was really into having sex with women. And that's the center of Christian faith as it was really given to us. That's the center of the Da Vinci Code. And so, what? Well, can you imagine in our culture that a book would be written that would have sex as the sacrament? <laughs> That's the Da Vinci Code. This is the latest thing. This is the latest God. This is the latest religion. And so what we have here is the latest philosophy, the latest religion, but not just that, the latest scholarship. Uh, G.K. Chesterton sums up much of scholarship in his day in the first part of the 20th century, saying that all the talk of what is latest and most progressive is merely a giggling excitement over fashion. And so you think about all the referee journals, and what are they? They're the latest. doesn't make them wrong. doesn't make them right, but they are the latest. Think of how every time the new issue of the New England Journal of Medicine is about to be issued, all the news stations and you know all the media are filled with accounts of what the latest medical scholarship is well now we can look down our noses at academics and philosophers and we can even look down our nose at religion and what's latest in religion but what about oprah winfrey and what about uh, rush limbaugh what about chris matthews well it's the same thing it's just on a popular level what about the herald times it's the same thing. It's on a popular level. You ever have that feeling that if you don't read the newspaper today that you'll fall behind? 
You ever have that feeling when you start pulling your white eyebrows out of with a tweezer that if you don't do it, you'll be left behind? You see, youth culture and what's latest is so much a part of what we live in that we don't even see it. We don't even know what we're doing. And so I was thinking this morning before preaching how I often will tell people that when I say man, but really mean men and women, that don't worry, I know what I'm doing because I used to say men and women, but now I've changed because I want to use biblical language. And what am I doing? Well, I'm trying to tell you that I'm, I'm later than you are. Because you just arrived at correcting your language to have men and women, and I'm telling you, no, I'm, I'm behind, I'm, I'm ahead of you. You know, I, I used to do that, but now I've gone on. You see, even when we make our cases, we try to establish the fact that we are the latest. And if you go into a city council meeting where they're debating gender identity ordinances, what you'll hear them say is, we are a what community? It's always the same. Progressive. Can you imagine being a regressive community? <laughs> Omaha, Nebraska. And don't worry, I'm not saying anything negative about Omaha, obviously. <laughs> and so after the council meeting this last week, and I was introducing myself to some people, and I, I said to them, I am really the Neanderthal. In other words, I want them to think not just yesterday, I want them to think millennia ago. I want them to realize that there are some people that are living the same boring life that people lived 4,000, 3,000, 2,000, 1,500 years ago. Because that's how much our culture is today about what is latest. Everybody mimics American culture. You go over to Africa, everybody that's religious is watching the Trinity Broadcasting Network in their little hovels. It's the latest. Benny Hinn says he'll heal me if I could just touch him. He's coming to, you know, to Nigeria. I'm going to go see Benny Hinn. He's the latest. Maybe he has what I need. Now, this is Athens. This is what the residents of Athens are like. This is what we are like. We have an addiction to news, which is absolutely meaningless. An addiction to, to, to scholarship that is just as meaningless. Now, don't. There is a place for scholars, but you understand what I'm saying. And in the middle of the city, they demonstrate this decadence, this, this infatuation with fads by what? They have an altar on every single street corner. As we'd say it today, um, a church on every street corner. In other words, they're so religious that they're open to every god. There's no god that they say no to. They're cosmic. They're progressive. They're open. You know, every god. I, I, I'm large-hearted. You know, I have a spot for the Christian religion of peace and, and the Islamic religion of peace. And, and the Buddhist and the Baha'i and the Scientologists. Well, <laughs> yeah. I have a little bit of difficulty going there, but Tom Cruise goes there, so it must be all right. Um, 
But that's what we're like, guys. That's what we're like, you know? We think it's being large-hearted to just the more the merrier. So there are gods on every street corner. And if we had idols on our corners instead of in our magazines and on our televisions and, and, you know, large screens, if we had them on the corners, we would have an altar to an unknown god. Now, think about how modern American Christians present the gospel today. Think of, for instance, how missionaries that have grown very tired present the gospel in Islamic lands. They go into an Islamic land and they say, Allah, that's our God. We call him Allah too. And they say that because it's a monotheistic religion and because the word, the name Allah has gone back 1,500 years that we could use the same name. Now, is that what the Apostle Paul did? I mean, after all, an unknown God has no identity. They're admitting they're ignorant of him, so why not call Jesus the unknown God, right? Was that what Paul was doing? He said what? What does he actually say about this God? What he says, and I have to move across my pages... He says that God, this, this God that they worship as an unknown God, in ignorance, he is there to proclaim to them. But then he doesn't build his case on the name, the unknown God, but rather he builds his case on the ignorance that that name indicates. So when they say it's an unknown God, he says, this God that you admit you're ignorant of, I'm here to proclaim to you. So they're not trying to take their unknown God and, 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 and tell them that actually they are already worshiping the true God. Do you understand the difference there? The Apostle Paul is not fearful of insulting them. He takes what they admit to be their ignorance and then he builds on it. He says, you admit you don't know. All right, I'm here to proclaim to you. I'm here to dispel the ignorance. And then he moves on. Now, it's very interesting, I have gotten a little bit ahead of myself, that it says in verse 16 that Paul's spirit was provoked within him. And, and I would ask you, as you look at my description of what Bloomington is today, and you're a believer, I, I'll speak in a moment to those of you who are not believers in Jesus Christ, but if you're a believer, I wondered, is your spirit provoked within you when you see the ignorance that surrounds you, that parades and masquerades as intelligence and as wisdom? Is your spirit provoked? Now, let me ask you this question. Why is it provoked? I mean, we can all spend our lives being provoked. That's not a difficulty. <laughs> you know, I can find an infinite number of things to be provoked at. I'm sure you're not that way. Especially if I haven't had my coffee in the morning. If you are provoked, why are you provoked? You know what? The truth is, most of the time, we're provoked because we're marginalized and we really resent it. We're not provoked because of the honor of God. But we're provoked because it's so humiliating to be a part of a gnarly little group that is, is despised. Well, Paul was provoked, and Paul was not provoked because he was marginalized. <laughs> I mean, think about that. That's a funny saying, isn't it? Paul being provoked because he's marginalized. Paul spent his life being marginalized. What is being stoned and left for dead? I'd say that's being marginalized. <laughs> I mean, think about it, you know. 
That's a whole lot worse than having to go to the back of the bus. Paul was not concerned about himself. And you see this over and over again with Paul. Every single city he goes in, he stays until he's persecuted. And then if the Christians in the city recommend it, he goes on to the next city and he starts creating a ruckus there. So it wasn't because he was marginalized. Paul was filled with righteous indignation at the despising of God the Father Almighty that he saw on, on all the corners. He was gnashing his teeth at the ignorance of God. Why? Because God was his Father and he loved him. And he honored him. And he lived to see the honor of God spread across the world. I have to admit to you um, that the reason I'm preaching from Acts chapter 17 is that every single year I have approached the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ devotionally. And every year I have preached about Mary or about Thomas or about some individual disciple who met the living Christ. And so it's always about the joy and how we'll have joy when we die because we'll go to heaven. And it's always subjective. Now, I'm not saying that the resurrection of Christ is subjective, but I'm saying that the way we've approached it has always been, you know, isn't that wonderful? And aren't you happy? And I'm happy. And we're all happy because Jesus was raised from the dead. But I've become convinced in preparing to preach this that we're happy at the wrong time. The real time we should be happy is Good Friday. Because Good Friday is when the blood is poured out and we sinners plunge beneath the blood and lose all their guilt and shame. But what is the resurrection? Let me tell you something. The resurrection is nothing that you've ever thought it is. It's nothing. The resurrection is the church militant. And we never get that. Never. We've never heard it. I've never heard it. Now, I'm sure I've heard it, but I've never heard it. The resurrection is nothing about softness and tenderness. And I walked in the garden alone, and then he walked with me and he talked with me. I'm not saying that didn't happen for Mary. But that's not what the resurrection is. Now, let's move on. What we see as we go on in the text is that the Apostle Paul is proclaiming two things. And if you look at verse 18, you'll see the summary of his sermon. Now, both of these are summaries. We certainly do not have all the words that Paul said. All we have is a basic outline of what he said in the Areopagus. But we have a basic outline of the larger outline that occurs later in the text in verse 18, where it says... Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, and some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? And by the way, the word idle babbler, this, this word babbler, you know what it refers to? It refers to birds that would sit in the gutter and pick scraps out of the gutter. And so when they call him a babbler, that's the closest we can come in English. Um, it, it might be the guy that, that uh, picks food out of the dumpster. It might be the guy that sits in front of the library and takes cigarette butts out that aren't quite done and lights them and smokes them. It's not a compliment to Paul. He's an idle babbler. And then it says, some were saying what this idle babbler wished to say, and others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching what? He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. 
Jesus and the resurrection. And so we move on and we see a more thorough description of the message Paul gave to the Athenians. But again, the center of the message is Jesus and his resurrection. Now, when we have it summed up here in verse 18, does this strike a chord with you that you remember all the sermons of the book of Acts? If you think back on the sermons in Acts, does the resurrection pop out at you? What do you think the apostles preached? Well, I'm going to give you a quick survey. In Acts 2, we have an account of the first Christian sermon. Uh, It's on the day of Pentecost. It's when the tongues of fire rest on their heads. Every man can hear in his own language, right? And we see there that as this message that was given by the Apostle Peter, not Paul, as this message comes to an end, what is the center of the message as as it's brought to a conclusion? Well, Peter says this, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now, this is the end of the sermon. Everything in that sermon is leading to this point. Listen to it again. This man, speaking of Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, don't think you took power over him. It was given to you. Jesus said you have no power other than what's been given to you by God. You, he's speaking to the Jews there in Jerusalem, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But, verse 24, God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Now, how do we not get it? But we don't. Think. You were there. You say, well, I, wasn't, I didn't do the nailing. Well, he, he says you didn't do the nailing. You used sinful men to do the nailing. The Romans did the nailing. You say, well, I'm not a Jew. I say, come on. If you'd been in Jerusalem, you would have been crying out, crucify him. What makes you think you're any better than anybody else in Jerusalem? And if you had been one of the twelve, you would have been cursing to a young teenage girl that, no, I'm not one of his disciples because that's what happened to Peter. And all the others ran away. So the best you could claim for yourself is that you would be a coward running away from any connection with Jesus, leaving him alone. But most of them were doing what? They were crying out, crucify him. Now, you crucified Jesus. Yes, you didn't do it yourself. Yes, maybe your voice wasn't as loud as the others, but you crucified Jesus. And now on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and he says this. He says, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again. Now, let me ask you, is that good news to you? It's not good news. If you've had any part at all in murdering a man and you see him raise up out of the grave, is that good news? It's not good news. It's not good news at all. It's the worst news you could possibly happen. How many novels are set around, how many plays are set around an image of a man who's wicked and ends up killing somebody, but 
Unbeknownst to him, somebody takes that other man away and nurses him and, and he comes back to life and then what? I mean, isn't that the center of, of the story of uh, uh, Gladiator? You know, how many novels and how many movies are built around the specter of the one that you have murdered coming back from the grave? This is what Jesus was to these men and women. He was the one they cried out, crucify Him. And now they're having proclaimed to them that He has risen from the dead. Now, that's not all the New Testament says. But let me warn you, it is never good news to you when somebody says you killed Him and He is alive again. This is why in the Bible it says that those who have not come to the cross of Christ for forgiveness of sins, when Jesus returns, what are they going to do? They're going to run to the mountains and they're going to cry out for the mountains to fall on them. Now you understand why I'm saying that we don't get any of the truth when we see Jesus raised only devotionally. That would never have been the center of the message of the apostles in the book of Acts. Never. They would not lower themselves to that. The the central issue was not whether Jesus can be with us again and we can be his friend. He was not a friend to John when he came to John on the shore. He was the king of the universe. And he said, John, do you love me? And John said, Lord, you know I do. And he said, then feed my sheep. He was all about giving his officers commissions. He was not a friend. Now, I know he was a friend. And I know it was a joy to see him. But make no mistake about it. He was a fearsome presence. And especially to those who murdered him. And even to John, who had just betrayed him. Well, not betrayed him, but denied him. I mean, excuse me, Peter. You you didn't correct me the first time, did you? Peter. Now, let me go to another text. Well, this is the very end of the Sermon of Pentecost. It says, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God. Now, think about this. You've killed Him. You've cried out to crucify Him. And now what happens? You're told that He's been raised from the dead, right? And then something else. You're told what? What did I just read? having been exalted to the right hand of God. (laughs) This is not good news to you. It's just simply not. It's one thing to have a human being your inveterate enemy because you murdered him, but you weren't quite successful. It's another thing for him to come back out of the grave. It's another thing entirely for that man to be exalted to the right hand of God. That is not a soft and gentle feeling or thought. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, this is the apostolic proclamation of the resurrection. I mean, do you see it? It's not warm and gentle. And Peter ends 
the sermon at Pentecost with this statement, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. And then he can't get it by it. He ends with this little phrase, This Jesus whom you crucified. There's no escape. And you know there would have been people there listening to Paul that or Peter that day who did not take part in the crucifixion, who did not cry out crucify him. There would have been people there who could strictly, in a legal sense, have denied that they had any part in the crucifixion. But do you think they were comforted? No. No. Because why? Because the Holy Spirit would have applied to their hearts that they were just as guilty. Why? Because the Bible says there is none righteous, not one. Not one. Not one of us stands. You remember the Philippian jailer? I love that story. Philippian jailer's a hard military man. He keeps a jail, and that's worse than most military men. I've had a bunch of jailers in my congregation up in Wisconsin, and they're a flea-bitten lot. Very cynical. The Philippian jailer all of a sudden has his prison busted up and he thinks his prisoners have escaped and he knows what's coming from the Roman authorities. So what does he do? He takes his sword. He's going to fall on it. Remember that? And all of a sudden, the prisoners cry out, Don't! We're here! And what is his response? Do you remember? I mean, it makes absolutely no sense unless you believe what Scripture teaches us, that there is none righteous, no, not one. That the central reality of every man's life and every woman's life and every child's life is their awareness that they serve a holy God, that they have been made by a holy God, and that they are not righteous, but that every day and every way they are given over to wickedness. And so this hard, hard, cynical... Uh, normal Philippian jailer's response is to say what? You remember what he says, any of you? He cries out, what must I do to be saved? And the simple answer, why? Because he's repenting. The simple answer is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And we read that that night... They were all baptized. They were saved. And so we read, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, that's the day of Pentecost sermon. That's the first sermon that's recorded in the book of Acts. It's the first sermon of the Christian church. The first one. That's how it ends. Now, If you're not familiar with it, would you like to take a guess about what it next says in the text of Scripture? Do you have any idea what the people, all the thousands of people listening that day, do you have any idea what they would do when they heard proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Would they sing, I came to the garden alone? It says here, It says, I'm picking up exactly from where we stopped. It says, this Jesus whom you crucified, verse 37 out of Acts 2. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. 
and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? In Acts chapter 4, we read another account of the apostolic preaching. It says, Their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly descent. And when they had placed them, the apostles, in the center, they began to inquire, By what power and what name have you done this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom, you want to guess what he's going to say? Whom, what? Come on. Whom you crucified. Whom God, you want to guess what he's going to say? Raised from the dead. You crucified God, raised him from the dead. By this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. In Acts 5:29, Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had what? Crucified. You had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. Later in Acts 10, again, the apostles speaking, this time Peter to Cornelius the, centurion, or Cornelius the Gentile. He says, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. And so what we see here is that the Apostle Paul, in coming to Athens, does the same thing. It's just boring. Yeah, he has a few preliminary words about how we all came from Adam, this one man. He talks about how there's only one God, and he made the earth, and, and how we're all brothers together because God is our Father. And some of their own poets testify to this. You know, he has certain things that he says trying to establish commonality with the Athenians. But it ends at the same place. And it ends with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But not just the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember what we said earlier. This same Christ is now seated where? 
He is seated at the right hand of God. Now, if you're at the right hand of a ruler, what does it mean? It means that you carry his authority and his power. And if it's God who is the ruler, how much authority and power does that give you? Is this a tender and quiet and gentle thing for the Athenians? No, it's not. The Athenians, in all their pomp and circumstance, all their pride, all their learning, all their talk of what is latest, all their gabbling and babbling and, and, and sophistication, are told there is one God. And this God in the past has overlooked such ignorance, but now he demands that all people everywhere repent. Now, if you're in Cambridge, Massachusetts, or if you're down coming out of the library at IU, you're over in Oxford, you're out at Berkeley, and somebody tells you in the past God has overlooked such ignorance, but now he demands that all people everywhere repent. How does that hit you? If you look at the end of the text, it's very interesting. It says there, verse 31, because, why are they to repent? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. And so he's overlooked such ignorance, but now he demands that all people everywhere repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day when this man is going to judge the entire world. But that's not how it ends. Look at what it says. It says, through a man whom he is appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, do you get what's going on there? What he's saying to them is, you want proof? Do you want proof that this one man will judge you and all the world. You want proof? The proof is that God has raised him from the dead. Now, I think about this, and here's what I think. Why do we bother talking about evolution? Why do we even bother? Think of all the various discussions and diversions that Paul could have gotten himself in with the Athenians. He could have gone on forever. Well, on the one hand, you say, but on the other hand, we say. But on the one hand, you say, but on the other hand, we say. And really, if you consider our points, they do seem to be fairly good, don't they? <laughs> and it just goes on and on, and he's just one more babbler. But if he gets up and he says, this Jesus whom you despise, who you would have crucified if you had been there. God has him seated at his right hand, and God has appointed a day that would come when he will judge every single man who has ever lived. And he's given you proof of this. He raised him from the dead. Now, what, what is Bloomington and IU going to do to you with that? What are they going to do? I'll tell you what they're going to do. They're going to laugh, and they're going to say, this guy's a lunatic. Because they're completely naturalists. They're completely materialists. They have no faith in anything but what you can see and feel and touch. They're materialists. And the idea that God has raised a man from the dead is anathema to them. Every time they drive by one of those little crosses at the side of the road, it is ignorance. It is one more example of the opium of the masses who can't get away from having some hope in the sky by and by. 
And so when the resurrection of Jesus Christ is testified to publicly, it's, it's, it's a, it's a broadsword and it cuts right across all men, all their consciences. And on one side, it leaves those who decide that they will cling to their pride and to their talk of what is latest and to their learning and to their philosophy and to their evolution, which says that he has not made us. We have made ourselves. And on the other side are those who say, what must we do? That's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the church militant. And if we ever stand in front of men and give an account for the hope that is within us, the resurrection of Jesus Christ must be at the center, right with the cross of Jesus Christ. You know what the 20th century evangelicalism has done? All it's ever talked about is the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's never said a word about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when it's said that word, all it's done is say that word in a way that's devotional and it gives warm vibes to those who already believe. It has never proclaimed the judgment of Jesus Christ. It has never proclaimed the cornerstone on which all men who refuse to bow before Jesus Christ will be dashed to powder. And why do you think the church is so pathetically weak? The people who are in it, incapable of ever, ever having some elder discipline them. Because anything having to do with God's no and judgment has been left completely behind. We've brought people to Jesus Christ by saying to them, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Is that apostolic preaching of the cross? It is true. But where is the resurrection? Where is He has made this man who He raised from the dead, He's raised him up to seat him at the right hand. And He has appointed that the day will come when this man will judge everyone who has ever lived. And He has furnished proof of that because He raised him from the dead. That's not an argument about evolution. And that's not touchy-feely. That's an objective fact. And either we believe in the resurrection as well as the crucifixion and we proclaim the coming judgeship when men who have not bowed the knee to this Son will cry out to the mountains to fall on them. Or people will never be introduced to God's cosmology. You think God's interested in our Big Bang? Think about it. I mean, you know, it's curious in the same way that looking at a Lego construction your child made is curious. I want to read one last thing. And I have always thought of this in connection with uh, the way that we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a parable told by Jesus near the end of his life. Just listen. It's Matthew 21. Jesus said this. He said, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son. 
to them saying they will what? They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Make no mistake about what we as men are. We are out for everything against God. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. But they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, Jesus says, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? And they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. And Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures? Now, what text from the Old Testament have you heard quoted again and again when they've been preaching the apostles in the book of Acts? Well, here it is again. Jesus said, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because the people considered him to be a prophet. Now, there are two final applications that I'm going to make of this teaching on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first one is to those of you who are not Christians. There is no other way. The Bible is very clear. Jesus is exclusive. He was exclusive when he said about himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. All right? That's where it started. And faithful Christians still today say that. They don't say anything else. They don't think that they're better than their master. And so there are no additional paths to heaven. Jesus is the only way. And his blood is your only righteousness. And his Father sent his Son to die to provide that blood. If you reject this Son... It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. There's absolutely no reason for you to bow before Christ out of fear. Unless the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and you realize that this Son is the judge of all men. But if God does open your eyes to see that, it's no shame for you to fall on your face. You're not falling on your face before me. You're not falling on your face before any man or any woman. You can forget about your wife, your husband. You can forget about your children. You can forget about those relatives who have been hassling you your whole life to come to Jesus. He is not the puppet of your relatives. He is the Lord of the universe. And it is no man's shame to bow before the King of all the earth. And so the response should be for you like the people on the day of Pentecost and like the Philippian jailer to say, what must I do to be saved? To be so overwhelmed by your inadequacy to stand before a holy God because of your sin. To repent. To take your sin to the cross of Christ. That's what you're called to do by this sermon. 
And Jesus says that He will accept you. In fact, He commands you to come. And He has this promise. He says, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so it's like it's crazy making. You have a burden, and then you're given rest. But that's what happens when you bow before Jesus Christ. And if you look around and see those who are Christians, if you're Christian, raise your hand. Raise your hand. You look around these people and ask them the burdens. Ask them. We'll tell you. It'll be more than you can handle. And he has given us rest. And his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And he is the king of the universe. He's fearsome to those who refuse to bow the knee. But he's a tender elder brother leading us to the Father for those who bow. Now, those of us who are Christians, I think you get the point. Don't give the world some, some wimpy, uh, you know, uh, everything has to be said positively presentation of the gospel. Don't, don't argue with them on their terms. Take the, take, take the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Take it militantly. Because if you don't testify to it, very, very soon they will see it with their own eyes. And you don't want anybody you've ever talked to to be surprised by that vision, that specter of the one that they have killed raising back from the grave and seated on the right hand of his Father and coming in power and glory. The trumpet shall sound and the dead in Christ shall be raised first and then all men will see him. There's nothing embarrassing about speaking that truth. We sing it. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. Well, it shouldn't be reduced to something that we sing when we're alone together in a worship service. It should be taken into the academy. It should be taken to China. It should be taken to your own family, to Easter dinner. It should be taken to your doctoral thesis. It should be taken to your professors. It should be taken into the union hall. Because it is the final final power in this universe. And every knee will bow. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. And every tongue confess what? Now you men, lift your strong right arm. Lift your strong right arm. Come on, lift it up. Every tongue will confess that He is what? He is Lord! Come on now. You could do it at a soccer or football game. He is Lord! Lord! Let's pray.